You're listening to the QPEM Podcast. To listen to our previous Sunday worship services, please visit our website at www.qpem.org. That's qpem.org. This week's message was given by Pastor Peter Kim. Amen. Welcome again, QPEM. It's great to see, again, new faces joining us every Sunday. And, you know, we're here, again, to meet our Heavenly Father and also to fellowship with one another. It's good to see, again, uh, just a family of QPEM coming back together as we're been continuing this series on cities. We said the cities are very relevant, very important during this season. As we know what's happening with the COVID pandemic, uh, what it's uh, done to especially our great city of New York, uh, just really leaving it ghost towns and a lot of people just uh, uh, emptying away, scurrying away from cities and, and going to maybe just a safer places, so to speak. Um, and then all the protests still continuing on, especially in the Pacific Northwest. And a lot of these cities, there's a lot of great importance to cities. And so we've been studying uh, cities in scripture. In the Bible, we began a few weeks ago with the great pagan city of Nineveh, right, in the book of Jonah, how God, he loves the city. He cares for the cities. Cities matter to him. You know, he cares for the people, he said, in the city of Nineveh who don't know their left hand from their right. You know, people who don't know how to discern what is truly right or wrong, good and evil. And, and God is a God of compassion, we learned, and a God of mercy upon people, especially in cities. Then we learned uh, about the cosmopolitan city of Ephesus, right, the Asia Minor capital there. And there Paul taught us that we are to be persuaders in the city, persuaders for the gospel. For it's through the city, because, you know, frankly, uh, people in the city, they're a bit more mobile and uh, be able to spread uh, the gospel. That's what happened in Ephesus, that all the regions surrounding in Asia there heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God is using the cities to spread the gospel. We also learned in a few weeks ago about the city of Antioch, right? The multicultural, multi-diverse uh, city of Antioch where uh, the first disciples there were called Christians, right? Christians actually were called first Christians in the city of Antioch as a city reflected the demographics of its community and the leadership even reflected that as well. Non-believers, those who had not any relationship with God, they were attracted to what was happening in this church, this city church, and they came together. The gospel brought all differences, all backgrounds together as one. And God used the Gentile church to spread the gospel. We know that it was a church in Antioch that first sent out overseas missionaries. Right? It's amazing. So we're learning about cities even on our Tuesday night gospel and life Bible studies. It's been great to see a lot of you join and over 20 members online. I hope for more this coming Tuesday of this gospel and life as we learned you know, two weeks ago kicking off the city theme of city, the pagan city of Babylon, right? Uh, we learned that even as the Israelites were exiled into Babylon, they're not to just distance themselves, avoid the city of Babylon, remove themselves from it, or take ourselves away from the city, but we're to learn to serve and love the city that God has called us to, to go into the city and to pray for the city because, as God says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if the city prospers, there you will also find your prosperity, your welfare. Right? Just amazing, that thought, that if the city is prospering, then you will also find your prosperity in it. And so we are to seek the peace and prosperity of the city that God has called us to here, especially in the great city of New York. Well, we're continuing to look at other cities and glean what God is teaching us in this time. Today we have another city, a very prominent city in the Bible, a city that was at the seat of the media and learning and culture there, a city perhaps where if the people 
came to know Jesus, if they were converted to the gospel, then they would have great influence over all of society, over all of the culture there, yeah, the learning, the education, academia, everything there. This city is a city of Athens, right? Athens, Greece. Would you turn with me again, if you don't have your Bibles, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start out in verse 15 here. And it says here, in, in Paul and, and you know, Silas and Timothy, um, they were there uh, first in Berea, but those who conducted Paul brought him as far, it says here, to Athens. They were in Athens now. It's modern-day Greece, right? Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy had remained in Berea. And so Paul sent off because there's great opposition right now in Berea. And so he's uh, arriving here to Athens. Again, this is the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. You know, before the rise of the Roman Empire, Athens was actually the leading political and cultural center of the Greco-Roman world, the entire center, the political and cultural center of this empire there. And after it was conquered by Rome, it continued to remain the center of learning. Uh, kind of like if you want to think about today in, in the U.S., uh, the capital, if you want to say of intellectual academia, where is that? Boston, right? Boston is such. New York, perhaps, a financial capital and such. So, so there, uh, here, and Athens is this learning capital, and Paul arrives here now. And it says with me, look with me in verse 16, that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, something happened. It says, his spirit was provoked within him. What does that mean? Do you ever wonder? He's in Athens here, this grand mecca of a city. And Luke writes in Acts, he describes Paul where his spirit was provoked. That means that he was greatly distressed. He was greatly troubled. Something was greatly distressing his heart. What was that? Well, it says here in verse 16, his spirit was provoked as he saw that this city was full of idols. Right? This incredible city, this intellectual capital, was full of of idols. Well, if we know Athens today, uh, I hope to visit Athens one day and, and visit this incredible, you know, the, the architecture, the ruins. Yeah. You see, uh, it's a city full of artistic beauty, right? You see the statues still there remaining today, those Greek gods and the architecture, the majesty, the temples. I'll just have a couple of pictures here even today. If you visit Athens, these are some of the uh, temples and statues that Paul himself, okay, in, in our context here in Acts 17, Paul is seeing these very majestic you know, structures 2,000 years ago. The first one here, the most famous of the ancient Greek temples, the Parthenon, right? Parthenon is dedicated to the goddess Athena. This was constructed in 447 BC. Athena, if you, don't, if you know, she's a goddess of wisdom. Courage, inspiration, law, and justice. And, and, and her role was to be the protector of the city. And so many people throughout the Greek world, they went to worship Athena, the goddess Athena, here in this temple, the Parthenon. The city of Athens actually bears her name, right, Athena. Okay? It's still there today. The next picture is temple of the Olympian Zeus, right? Zeus is one of the largest temples in Greece. This Olympian uh, built in 6th century B.C., and originally, it had about 104 grand columns and structures. Today, even 16 structures still stand. Like, you see the picture behind me. The temple was in the center of Athens, and many people went to worship. <laughs> the Zeus right there. 
This next uh, temple, Temple of Hephaestus, Hephaestus. It was built in fifth century, one of the most uh, best preserved Greek temples, as you can see, even see the condition. It was dedicated to Hephaestus, this god of metalworking and fire. Again, people went to worship this god of metalworking and fire there. This next temple, Temple of Poseidon, I'm sure you've heard of Poseidon, right? And the god of the seas, right? And so people, many would travel to Athens, to this uh, temple uh, on the shore, close to Athens, and, and, and they would bring sacrifices and offerings to call on the god, this god of the seas, to ask for safe travels, right, whenever they were out into the waters. This next uh, temple here, the Rectheon. The Rectheon was built in 423 BC, named after this hero, uh, defender of the city, Poseidon Erechthus. And, and, and it's actually known for right now, even today, these famous uh, female figures, these uh, six uh, caryades. Uh, if you go to the next picture, there, there it is. These sculpted female figures serving as an architectural support. I mean, it's beautiful. Just keep that up there for a second there. I mean, you look at that, a work of art, right? It's, it's incredible, right? Built in 400 BC, I mean, just uh, technology back then is incredible, astounding, majestic. People travel around the world to visit Athens, this historic site. I'd love to go there with my family one day. You know, take out our cameras, have my kids stand, let's take a picture, smile in front of the you know, statues and the temples. We marvel at these structures, at their beauty, their majesty. But the Apostle Paul surely didn't marvel at them. Remember what it says in verse 16. It says, his spirit was provoked within him in seeing such temples. His spirit was provoked, greatly distressed. If we see the context of this word, again, it occurs a few times in Scripture, but this verb to provoke, to be greatly distressed, is the same verb I see in the studies In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2 to 3, in how this verb is used to describe God's reaction to something specific. In Isaiah 63, 2 to 3, it says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me. There's that verb. A people who distress me, provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. This is God's reaction to idolatry, to idols. What is God's reaction to such majestic you know, statues and, and temples? It is deep, great distress. The spirit is provoked. The same way Paul is provoked. As you can say, he's looking at Athens right now, not through his eyes, but through God's eyes, right? Through God's eyes at how God is viewing it. Paul is not amazed at the beauty of art and culture here. He's greatly distressed at what he sees. Entire city devoted to false idols, to false gods. Here represented by these temples and statues that people came to worship and present sacrifices. Paul is grieving inside, witnessing what he sees in this great city of Athens. And to these great people of Athens, look at what he calls them. Look at how he describes them in verse 22. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he says, 
men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, he says. He says, Athenians, I perceive in very, very, every way, actually, that you are not just religious. How does Paul say? You are very religious. Let me ask you. If you think of someone as that term religious, how do you perceive them? And is it a good thing or, or not a good thing? For most people, often, if you call someone, oh, that person is, oh, she, you know, she's very religious. You know, most people would, would signify that, you know, that person's a very good person, right? That person is striving to, you know, live a good life, a holy life, a righteous life, or whatever you want to say. You know, religious people, as we know it, they, you know, they don't do, you know, the bad things, if you want to say. They don't, oh, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't go clubbing, they don't cheat, they don't lie or steal. You know, religious people are honest. They're good, they're devout, they go to church, they give to the poor, they're faithful in their marriages, they're good husbands and wives. To the world, the term religious is a very good thing. But to Paul, inside of this religiosity, if you want to say in Athens, it's provoked his spirit, it's distressed him greatly. There is much religiosity here in the city of Athens. How so? (laughs) Athens is a very religious city, full of religious, very religious people, according to Paul. What does that mean, though? Paul is reasoning with them now. If you look with me in verse 17, he's persuading them, to the truth as he always does in every city he goes to, right? We know that. And he went to, of course, Ephesus. He persuaded them to the gospel. He reasoned with them in the temples, remember, all day long. In the same way, verse 17, it says he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews first and the devout persons. And then he went to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul is a persuader of the gospel. And he's reasoning with them, it says here, every day. Didn't take a day off as a persuader of the truth. Every day that is his calling, his mission, if you want to say. He's reasoning others to the truth, right? You see, the people of Athens, though devout, Paul calls them very religious. Their religion is based on really one of two, if you want to say, worldly philosophies, ways of thinking and how... uh, We live our life, right? In verse 18, Paul says to some of the people that he's speaking with, these philosophers, look with me, he says some of the Epicurean and then the Stoic philosophers, they were talking with Paul. And these philosophers, they were saying, what does this babbler wish to say, right? This word babbler comes from a Greek word that literally means one who picks up seeds, okay? One who just goes, picks up seeds from the ground. These philosophers here, again, brilliant, great minds. They see Paul, not as such. He's this babbler, right? Paul is just spouting of ideas without really understanding what he's saying. You know? Who are these group of philosophers that Paul mentions here? Well, again, there are two prevalent schools of philosophy, schools of thought during this time. 
I would say, two schools of thought that we see even today, very much in our world today. The first, in verse 18, Paul notes them as a group of Epicureans, right? The Epicureans, you heard of them? The Epicureans, they're a philosophical school, a school that, what did they do? They valued pleasure above anything else. They, they believed in the absence of pain, uh, absence of disturbance in life. You know, if you want to live this life, it ought to be a life free from pain or suffering or any kind of disturbance to that. You know, see, the Epicureans, they didn't, they didn't deny the existence of God. Sure, they're, they're gods, Athena and, you know, Zeus. Sure, I, we, can, we can acknowledge they're there. But, you know, what? they considered them remotely far off, right? Far off from our, you know, world as we know it today. And so they believe, you know what? You know, it's on really us how we live. The gods are kind of in their own little world there. They're not going to meddle in our trivial affairs. And so they saw life really as being without any really meaning. After death, there's really nothing there. And so they just say, hey, live for today. Live for pleasure. You heard of that famous Epicurean philosophy, I'm sure. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, right? That's the Epicurean philosophy of, of life. Do whatever you want. Eat, drink, marry, just do pleasurable things today. Why? Because tomorrow we're going to all die anyway. There's no, you know, you know, eternity or there's no place, you know, after we die. So just focus on this world, as much pleasure you can take from it, and then we're going to just die, right? Pursue whatever brings you that pleasure, right? Whatever gives you that fulfillment, satisfaction, do as you please, <laughs> Sound familiar? Well, yeah. If you want to think of, of this, uh, this is kind of like the way of life. I would say the majority of the world lives today, right? Most of the people, if you really talk with them, I mean, they're living for this world, you know, this day, right? You know, everything that I'm doing is not really for, for what <laughs> is going to happen after I die, you know, whether, you know, eternity is, is real or not. I'm going to just live for this world. I have enough you know, to worry about here. So let's just do our best to just, you know, have as much pleasure as we can. Avoid, you know, the hardships and pains. And that's why we got to work harder to make more money so that we can go on more vacations and, and things of this world that we can enjoy, live and just be happy, live for the moment. How many of us believe in this philosophy? I thought about this. How many of us are living perhaps our lives just even subconsciously without even knowing? I catch myself. Day to day, I'm not talking about, you know, the grand picture, of course, our faith. I'm talking about day to day, the, the thoughts that we have, the decisions we're making, and the, where we're spending our money. How many of us perhaps are living in this way of life? Eat, drink, marry, for tomorrow we die. You know? These are the Epicureans, okay? On the other side, Paul says there's another group of philosophers, the Stoics, right? What do they believe in? The Stoics actually believe that there is a supreme God. They believe in this thing, what you call a pantheistic way, that, that God is everywhere. He, he's in this, like, this thing, he's like, he's like this world spirit that encompasses all of life, a spirit which has fixed the fate of everyone and everything. So they're kind of, if you want to say fatalist, if you want to say, and it doesn't matter really, you know, I'm just, you know predetermined, whatnot. They see God as this life force controlling everything. The pessimist, if you want to say taught that life consisted, you know what? You gotta just follow your duty. That's what they believe, the Stoics, okay? It's about just duty, just, just doing your best to, to work out, you know, whatever it is that is right and good and, and whatever the gods are calling you to, right? This pursuit of duty, not the pursuit of pleasures, complete opposite from the Epicureans. This pursuit of duty. 
to courageously accept and face whatever that fate is, however painful even it might be, to seek and develop their own, if you want to say, self-sufficiency. We, perhaps in you know, faith, we, we, we know this as a works-based faith, right? That my faith is based on what I do, my works, you know? And, you know, the harder I work, the better I, I am in, you know, treating others or, you know, coming to church or giving to the poor, then the more, you know, points or, or efforts that I make that ultimately the gods will be pleased by my works and there be it, a life based on duty, right? My behavior, how I appear to others, that's all important because God will see that. There you have it, the two camps. Epicureans, Stoics. One believing in the pursuit of pleasure, other believing in the pursuit of duty. Two groups. To those groups, these two, in verse 22, Paul calls them, in every way, you are very religious, he says. You're very religious. Now, again, I can understand perhaps the Stoics, yeah, yeah, you know, the people that are you know, living by, as a duty, they're, they're trying to be holy and, and obey all the laws and the rules in this book and, and to try to not to break any of the rules here, right? To try to obey all these rules. Yeah, I can understand how they're, you know, religious, but how can you say that Epicureans are religious? Doesn't make sense to me. Those who believe in the pursuit of pleasure, they're pagans, sinners, right? How is that religious? It's more, I would say, the opposite, anti-religious, isn't it? What's Paul talking about here? Well, look again at the city of Athens. This intellectual city. What does Paul say when he first goes there? Right again in verse 16. He sees this great city. His spirit is provoked. Why? Because he sees a city full of idols. Idols. What do we know about idols? Uh, we're going through this gospel and life study on Tuesdays. Pastor Tim Keller's uh, tremendous uh, you know, his teaching there. I love what Keller says and how he defines idolatry. He says, idolatry is such. Listen here. Idolatry is promoting created things, goals, relationships, pursuits into the absolute and ultimate values. And then, replacing God with them or worshiping God in accordance with them. Brilliant definition. An incredible understanding of what idolatry is. Again, it's not just, you know, let's go to a temple of Athena, uh, the Parthenon, and just, you know, lay some sacrifices to this, you know, goddess statue. People just think that's what an idol is. No, an idolatry is promoting anything that is created Right? Not the creator, but anything that has been created, even goals, relationships we have, pursuits, even you know, meaningful and, 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 and holy pursuits per se. Promoting these into absolute ultimate values, thereby replacing God as such. And even maybe, you know, hey, stick God in there sometimes, worshiping God in accordance with them. Right? This is what the Athenians are doing. This is what the Epicureans are doing. You, you, can you see? They're promoting created things, making them into absolutes. The meaning behind these idols, if you go to these 
temples, the statues, the magnificent you know, structures there. City full of idols, religiosity. They have promoted whatever it is here that they're pursuing into the ultimate thing. Religiosity at the utmost part of their life in their pursuit of pleasure or whatever you want to call it. You know. And some of us, again, we say, hey, you know, this religious talk, you know, I'm not a very religious person. I can't call myself religious. But the insight that we're understanding here, really, if we have any such idols in our life, if you want to say whatever we are promoting, worshiping, giving worth to greater than God, this inordinate desire, right? Keller talks about this inordinate desire. It's rooted in idolatry, right? That every sin, if we talk about any sin of ours, anything, again, that separates us from God, his righteousness, every sin actually is rooted in the inordinate desire for something other than God. Right? Think about it. An inordinate, that's like an extraordinary desire in our souls, in our, my life, my heart, to desire something, to trust in something other than God and his son, Jesus Christ. To trust in that, perhaps even for my worth or righteousness, or some, for some people, even their salvation. Right? Author David uh, Polinson, he, he writes, uh, he says the NT merges, actually the New Testament, if we look at you know, the Old Testament, you, we, we are understanding idolatry and you know, all these you know, idols that you know, thou shalt not buy before God. You know, we, we get that maybe in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's merging this concept of idolatry and this concept of these inordinate life-ruling desires. It's tied together here. Idolatry is a problem of the heart. It's a metaphor for human lusting, whatever our, our human heart is lusting, craving, desiring, yearning, <laughs> greeting you know, for our demands. So if we put it that way, I think we can all acknowledge that all of us, whether we know Jesus or not, we have these inordinate desires in our hearts in whatever pursuit of pleasure that we have to satisfy our souls, right? To satisfy our souls. This pursuit of pleasure, it is very much religious church. Right? You know, I'm thinking about, again, you know, what, what are some things that we pursue for pleasure that give us such maybe, you know, happiness or, you know, satisfaction, temporal or not? And I, I think about, you know, for me, you know, one of the things that I'm most passionate and I enjoy, just really find satisfaction, is just sports, right? I may not be a good athlete, but I enjoy watching sports and, and going to sporting events and, and watching sports with friends. And, and obviously for the past five and a half, six months, we haven't been able to do any of that. And I've been like feeling this sense of emptiness. It's like, man, a big part of my life is gone, right? Seeking like, you know, just, just kind of almost down and, and you know, just this, you know, a sense of empty feeling. And, and so now all of a sudden, last week, sports is back. Tonight, you know, the last night we got the NBA, the basketball's back. You know, there's like 10 games a day now. And then coupled with baseball now, the Yankees are back, the best team in baseball, right? So we're watching that, right? And then my favorite sport, hockey, Hockey's not just back, it's in the playoffs in August, for goodness sakes. 
It's like an overload now all of a sudden. It's just bombarding you. A guy like me, I'm like, whoa, overwhelmed so much all at once, compounding. Yesterday, I was watching the first playoff game of the Rangers, and, and I had my boys, Caleb and Luke, with me, and we're watching them. We were so excited, and we were pumped up. And the Rangers just played horrendous. They were just terrible. I was getting so upset. I was getting so angry that I actually started yelling at the TV. I started, I started almost, you know, I didn't curse, but I was like very angry and upset. I started screaming at the TV. And my mother-in-law, she comes down you know, into the family room. She says, what's going on? Are you, are you okay? I said, oh, yeah, no, 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 we're okay. And, and she's like, what, what are you, you know, why are you screaming at the boys? What do, you, what, what do they do? And then Catherine says, no, he's just screaming at the TV, mom. Okay, it's okay. He just go back upstairs. I'm like, yeah, sorry, mom. You know, it's a bad example, you know, I'm setting. You know. I get so passionate that over a game that I'm just losing even my emotions, this pursuit of pleasure, perhaps, in that sense, has become almost an idol. I would say, perhaps, yes, an idol in my heart, right? What is these inordinate desires that we have? A desire that is greater than perhaps our desire even for Christ. It's a matter, a matter of the heart here, right? In our passage, the Epicureans are perceived by Paul to be very religious, but it's not positive in any way, right? Their religiousness is stemming from their idols in their lives, right? What they are pursuing that is other than God, right? Being religious is not something that's just saying, oh, that person's holy, no. For the Epicureans, even those that they believe that are anti-religious, those that simply live out life for pleasure, even they are religious in the very sense that their religion is to the very idol that they worship in their lives. Right? You see what I'm saying? The people that we would say are the least religious, they are very much religious, church, because they are very religious to whatever they worship in their lives. What are we religious to? Right? When we read a Passages like this, again, we tend to kind of, uh, again, put these people in their camps. You know, oh, they're the Epicureans. I'm not like them. They're the pagans. You know, they're the ones that do bad things in this world. I hope we understand that anything that we are religious to, something other than God, other than Jesus, is the Epicurean philosophy of life, right? What are these idols in our lives? Right? And there's an old saying about the cities in Northeast America, right? Northeast uh, USA, uh, they say in Boston, they ask, if you ask someone, you know, in Boston, they ask, hey, what does he know, right? What does he know? In Philadelphia, they ask, you know, what family is he from? And in New York City, they ask, you know, how much does he make, right? And those are the questions if you can ask the people, you know. It's true because in Boston, it's all about intellect. Where'd you go, to, you know, school, your academic progress, right? New York City, you know, how much money are you making? It's the financial capital of the world, right? You know, this quip is actually a tribute to Mark Twain. It's an analysis of every city's particular idols, whether education or in Philadelphia, family pedigree, where you're from, your family, or here in New York City, financial wealth, right? The idol of a city, perhaps, is, you know, different from an idol of a city of others, but regardless, wherever we are, there are idols that are prevalent. Yeah. What is it that is driving our lives today? What are we driven by? I know many New Yorkers driven by careers, of course. 
our vocations, our careers. Why so, we ask? Why are we so driven by our careers? Why are we devoting 50, 60, 70, 80 hours of our life, our weekday, into our workplaces? Why? And perhaps maybe it's for a pursuit of happiness or success. Is it a power of wealth or uh, you know, uh, seeking of power that we're going after? Perhaps even some of us are more like, you know, Philadelphia, you know, I just want a good family, you know. My, my life is fixated on my family. I get caught up in that a lot, you know. My focus is on my children and how I want to raise them to be good people in this world. Even perhaps our religion, it's driven, driving us. You know, these are good things, yet we know when these good things become ultimate things, they become idols in our lives, right? Whatever replaces God in his rightful place, we have to identify. We ask God, God, help me to see what these idols are, and please help me to get rid of it. <laughs> Turn my religiosity back to you, Father, right? You know? <sighs> I think it's important when we share uh, you know, the faith, share the gospel to Epicureans of today. Again, majority of people, I would say, that live in this world. They're living with that Epicurean philosophy of just, you know, pleasure, a pursuit, a pursuit of pleasure. That they all have idols in their lives. That every idol is a barrier to faith in God. You know, perhaps even when we're ministering to them, we have to identify what those idols are, those false gods. And then we can share effectively the gospel in the people that we're trying to reach. I think if you talk with someone enough, I guarantee you, you talk with someone for five, 15 minutes, you're gonna start to understand what's important to them, right? What, perhaps even, if you go a little deeper, you're gonna start to understand what their inordinate desire is. I, get, I dare say, 30 minute conversation, you'll, you'll get to know someone pretty well. And you'll be able to see what their heart is driven by. And that's a way that we can really approach the gospel there, the religiosity, right? Now what about the Stoics then, right? Okay, the Stoics, perhaps maybe we can relate to a bit better as those who are, you know, living perhaps more on the outside righteous, holy lives. What's wrong with that, some of us ask? What's wrong with the focus on duty? Isn't works important, right, in faith, in religion? You know, if you think about it, the works focused on self-works and, and works, why they're so important. This, I think some of us who came to know Jesus um, Perhaps we've come to know him with a misunderstanding of how our faith has come to be. Usually when someone is awakened to their need, right, to his or her need for you know, a savior in your life, you're awakened to that need. What, what does that person do? You ever see someone that, that's awakened to that kind of desperate need for someone to save their life because they realize, hey, I can't do it myself? What do they do? They go out actually even more so on this furious effort to please God, to do more through my efforts and works. Think about it. You know, when you come to know the love of God, right, and what he did, uh, you know, in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross for you, what does that lead to? It ought to lead to this desire to please him, right? To please him through our efforts or works, you want to say. It's a sense that we have this sense of obligation in our minds, that God, you did all this for me, so I have to still repay you somehow, Right? I have to do something to, to, you know, make up for what you did, this, this incredible gift, priceless cost that what you sent in Jesus to die on that cross for me. I got to do something now to, to make up for that, to earn my, 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 my way there and what you've done. And so we think that by doing all these things, the duties, and even coming to church like today, praying even, following his commands in the Bible, 
maybe even serving and, and giving to the poor, all these things, we feel we do so as an obligation, as a duty to pay him back, right, for what he has done for us. Again, all these things that we're doing, good things, serving others, loving others, praying, these are wonderful things that Christ commands us to do. But it has nothing to do with our salvation, church. All of that has absolutely nothing to do with whether you are saved or not. Whether you will be going to heaven for eternity when you die, or whether you will be going to hell for eternal damnation. It has nothing to do with it. Remember the parable we studied this past Tuesday? The Pharisee and the tax collector? The Gospel of Luke? Remember the Pharisee, again, on the outside, his external behavior, a good man, a righteous man. He gave tithe to the poor, he was generous. He said he wasn't like the other robbers, those evildoers, those adulterers. He was a faithful husband, right? His approach to righteousness, as we learned, this Pharisee, was all external, right? Focused on behavior, rules in, in God's Torah, to keep the rules and make sure you don't break the rules. That's how he lived his life, comparing himself to others. Look at me, I'm not like these other men. I'm more holy than they are, God. You recognize that, don't you? We learn very clearly that, that Pharisee, uh, externally looking very righteous inside, he was very much a hypocrite, right? right? Self-righteous. Whereas a tax collector, what did he say? A simple one line, he pri- prayed and cried out. What did he say? He said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Remember that? God, would you have mercy on me? I am not just a sinner, I am the sinner. I'm not just saying I'm a a sinner among sinners. I'm better than maybe some other sinner there on the street. No, I am the sinner. That's my identity. That's who I am, and I am disgraced. I'm shameful for my sin, God. Have mercy on a wretched soul like me. He pleads for God's mercy. And what does Jesus say in the end? It is a tax collector who is justified who is made righteous. Why? Not by what he's done. Simply by God's grace, right? God's grace and his mercy. You know, church, you know, we're understanding, you know, what the tax collector understands that it's not my, you know, goodness, my righteousness that has earned a path to hell, heaven, salvation. It's God's righteousness, only that could come from his son, Jesus Christ, that he gives his righteousness to me. And by Christ's righteousness, I am now deemed righteous. My salvation is not based on what I've done or what I haven't even done in my life. It's not something that I've earned or become worthy of receiving. It's always and always will be because of God's grace, his free gift to us, his love and compassion and mercy and his gift of his son, Jesus Christ, right? Do we believe that, right? Do we believe it? If we are believing it, are we living it, embracing it, responding to it? The Stoics believed, right? That, hey, if you just try hard enough, if you live a good life, then maybe God will save you. Your behaviors, your actions, your choices, yes, though important, they believe it's gonna ultimately lead to whether you're saved or not, right? Whether you're going to heaven or hell. That's, again, what we call religion church. That is what religion teaches. 
We know this formula. We've, we've learned this before. Religion, I say every other religion in this world, you name it. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, every other religion, even Judaism, I would, I would argue. Every religion says, if I obey the rules, then God will accept me, right? If I obey this, if I you know, try to obey all of this and not try to break any of this, as much as I can, if I try hard enough, then God will love me, then God will accept me, then I will go to heaven. Every religion, if you, if you see it, has that formula to the T. And so it becomes a duty-based faith, right? A duty religion, if you want to say. A pursuit of duty, right? Paul calls these Athenians, again, very religious. We have a lot of religious people that are living in this world today. And I would dare say, unfortunately, perhaps many of the people that are religious even themselves are lost. Even they are lost, right? That is why Paul is addressing these two groups in verse 22 again. The Epicureans and the Stoics, both of you are very religious. Epicureans, you know, you may call them the irreligious people, you know, the pursuit of pleasure. The Stoics, you can call them religious people, whatever. Paul teaches them ultimately, both of these paths will lead to destruction. Both of these paths do not lead to salvation. Both of these paths do not lead to me, a love relationship with me. Religion or irreligion, we say, they both lead to death, right? And in this city, this great pagan city of Athens, this city full of idols, Paul says both ways, what you believe, it's not the way. Those two ways to live are not it. He says there's only one way. There's only one way to live that will lead ultimately to this satisfaction, this this salvation that you are looking for. And he says that in the verse 18, the end of verse 18. What does it say? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection church. Verse 18. The other ways of life, it may sound good, look good on paper. They'll lead to death. There's only one way that leads to life. It is Jesus and his resurrection church. It's the only way. Only through Jesus, a faith in Jesus Christ, that God, you did it for me. That you had to do it for me. I couldn't. And Jesus, you died on that cross for my sin. I am the sinner. That sin that I committed today, yesterday, and tomorrow, it was nailed on the cross. You did it. And I thank you, Jesus. On that cross, you exchanged your righteousness for my sin, the great exchange. I am once and for all forgiven and saved, and redeemed. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Paul preached Jesus. He preached the resurrection. He persuaded people of the gospel. He presented the case that we are all sinners in need of a savior, and that God, in his love, he sent his son Jesus to die on that cross for our sins, and he offers everyone, offers everyone who will listen, forgiveness of our sins through the blood that his son Jesus Christ shed on that cross. That as he rose from the grave, that's the resurrection we believe that we should believe in the risen Christ, that he is risen, he is Lord and reigning over all of our lives today and he will forever reign for all eternity. That's a gospel church. Today, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a uh, reminder of perhaps how we've lived and how we ought to live, how we are living today. A lot of us, again, we've grown up in the church, we have, 
perhaps we would maybe you know, consider ourselves uh, in the stoic camp. You know? We're trying to be faithful, do our works. But yet we've realized you know, this religion is just the same formula. That if I obey, if I'm a good person, then God will love me. Christianity says completely the opposite, church. Christianity flips that completely upside down, 180. You know what Christianity says? He says, Christianity says, God already loves you. Because God already has accepted you. How do you know that? He gave you his son, Jesus Christ. That's how. So because God, through his son, Jesus Christ, he loves you. And he accepts you. And he has welcomed you into a love relationship with him through his son, Jesus. Because he already loves you, therefore, I obey the rules. Therefore, I will learn to live a holy life. Therefore, I will you know, try to help the poor. Therefore, I'll come to church and serve him. Therefore, I will live a righteous life, not by my righteousness, but by his son, Jesus Christ. You see that, church? It's a complete difference in Christianity with every other religion. You know? So often, you know, this religion is the default mode of our human hearts, right? Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, he, he wrote, he said that religion is the default mode of the human heart. That our computer in our, in our minds, whenever we wake up, it operates automatically in that default mode of religion unless we deliberately tell it to do something else. I'm telling you, every morning we wake up, the human inclination, our heart tendency is to operate my, by my duty, sense of duty, obligation. Luther says that even after you're converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on that religious principle. We'll always be going back to that mindset, I gotta do, I gotta keep doing, earning and working to earn God's love. You know, your heart will go back to that unless you deliberately, repeatedly set that back to the gospel mode, right, church? I almost think about it like a, kind of like a little lever, a little switch. Every morning we wake up, our human heart is defaulted. Default mode, religion. Right? We're very religious people. We try to be. Every morning we have to intentionally, deliberately switch gospel mode. Okay? God, you did it all. There's nothing more I need to do for salvation because you did it all. Now I have it all. I get it all. And now because you love me, I want to respond in loving you back, right? Because you love me, because you have given grace that I didn't deserve, I want to today live for you, right? I want to please you. I want to, you know, make you proud, right? And that's our motivation, church, in what we do, everything that we do. It's not to get something from God. It's because we have already received everything from him, church. Isn't that different? Is that a different way to live every day? Isn't that a different motivation we have, church? Brothers and sisters, it's not about religion. It's not about being religious, you know? The real question we have to ask, what are we religious about, right? As Epicureans, we can be religious to the idols in our lives, whatever is the pursuit of a pleasure in that idol that we seek. As Stoics, we can be religious even to works and duties and self-righteous faith. It's not about religion, it's about the gospel. It's about the good news that God has given to us. When we grasp the beauty of the gospel, I promise you it's gonna help us. It's gonna change us. It's gonna motivate us to live no longer for these worldly pursuits or pleasures or to live for duty or obligation. We're gonna live for the gospel, for gospel freedom. We're gonna actually experience joy, happiness, and pleasure in this ultimate sense and meaning. 
And my, you know, motivation today is going to, I want to love you, God, you know. I want to just respond to your love for me and what you've done in Jesus. I want to, I want to respond to your love. That's what I'm going to be doing. I promise you, you start doing that gospel mode, your life's going to look different. Your life's going to look different. Church, this week, as a takeaway, perhaps an application, let's ask God, God, what are these idols in my life, right? The city of Athens was full of idols. It deeply distressed Paul's heart. And I promise you, these idols greatly distress God's heart, church. Whatever these idols are, it is greatly provoking his spirit. What are these idols that we become religious to? With the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray, God, would you rid these idols from our lives that we would ultimately live this week to serve you, to love you, you alone, simply, church, as a response to the grace and salvation that he has given to us through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. He offers that to you today. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the QPEM podcast. For more information on our church, please visit our website at www.qpem.org. That's Q-P-E-M dot one.